the big misconception is that this is corporate America and corporate America doesn't care about you and you're going to just be out there alone on your own. They have a ton of people whose job it is just to make sure that you're successful. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today's guest is FBA Austin's Career Development Director, Jason Wallace, CFP. Over the last nine years, he's worked his way up from paraplanner to lead advisor, and his career advice might surprise you. Up next, Jason talks with Hannah Moore CFP about the surprising opportunities that can be hiding at broker-dealer firms and why he wants you to call your grandma. Sustainable investing in the United States continues to expand at a robust pace, and one in three U.S. investment dollars uses environmental, social, and governance strategies. Gain your competitive edge by earning the chartered SRI counselor designation from the College for Financial Planning, a Kaplan company. It's the first and only major financial credential dedicated specifically to sustainable, responsible, and impact investments. FPA members save 15% on eligible Kaplan programs. Get started today and gain the specialized knowledge that can set you apart. Visit Kaplan.com slash FPA members. Well, thank you for joining me today, Jason. Thanks for having me, Hannah. One thing that stood out to me, particularly about you, is that you have graduated from Texas Tech and you've been a financial planner at the same firm for nine years. And as much as I wish that wasn't an anomaly, it does feel like an anomaly at times. Um, So I'm curious, uh, did you expect to stay with one firm when you started or did you give any thought to that when you first entered into financial planning? (laughs) Well, I really don't like change, I guess, but that's that's not the truth. The the reality is, is I didn't really have any expectations. I was hired from directly out of the program through the FPA career day here in Austin, Texas. And I interviewed with several firms and I just felt a good fit with this firm from day one. And shameless plug here, I think to be great in this business, you have to have a good intuition. And so I talked with a couple other firms and this was the firm that just felt like it was going to be the one for me. Now, did I know I was going to be here for nine years? Absolutely not. But what I can tell you is, is that my role has significantly evolved over those nine years. And in this small group setting that I work in, the biggest factor of what has kept me here is that as my role evolves, I really do have that sense that every step of that evolution, I've been a decision maker in molding that position. So, you know, sometimes when I talk to folks wearing my FPA career director cap, I talk to them about the different places that you can go to work when you enter into this workforce. And one of the advantages to working for a smaller group, our group uh, has only been five five uh, employees. And so when you go to work for a small group, you you have the pro of being very involved in the design and evolution of your particular role. Now the con, the downside is that you have to be very involved with 
the direction that you want your role to take. And you have to constantly advocate for that direction so that it will happen. I grew up in a large family. I'm one of five children. And one thing that I learned is that you have to constantly lobby your parents if you want something to happen. If you want to, you know, if you want to go to Sonic after Taekwondo, you have to ask dad before Taekwondo. You have to tell mom, hey, I asked dad during Taekwondo. Then on the way home in the car, which back in my day was a suburban, you had to say, hey, me and my sisters want to go to Sonic. We've all agreed. Mom, dad, can we go? And I think that's something that you really have to do in a small firm is you've got to talk to all parties involved in a decision and really have the pre-conversation. We don't sit down and have big corporate meetings about what we're going to do every single week. You just have to go around and kind of knock on doors and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I've been able to stay at this firm is because they've listened every time that I do that. I don't always get my way. Let's be clear. Sometimes I don't get to go to Sonic on the way home. But for the most part, I felt heard. So self-advocacy, I think, is what got me to stay here as long as I have. That's what I've done. Obviously, on their part, they've listened. Yeah, that's really neat. Just even like how we need to be proactive in our careers uh, to get to get where we want to go. So I'm curious, what was the role that you started at? What's your role now? And what are kind of the different points that you've, where are the different roles that you have fulfilled at your firm? Yeah. Thanks for asking, Hannah. So I originally started as just kind of a jack of all trades paraplanner. I wasn't licensed. Um, I wasn't a CFP holder at the time. And so my initial job duties were to spend a lot of time in our CRM, our client relationship manager, and also spend a lot of time in our financial planning tool. Our particular firm has always used eMoney. And so becoming an expert at that tool, becoming an expert at, you know, forecasting using the client's data, um, that was a big part of my initial role here, developing the assumptions page, the process, uh, developing a financial plan for a client. That was my initial first large contribution to this firm's client experience. And over time, that role evolved, right? The next stage was then I started handling some low-risk, low-reward client relationships after I got licensed. And then I also got my CFP certification. So to kind of build confidence, I was given some low-risk, low-reward opportunities. I wasn't necessarily compensated for those opportunities. It was just a way for me to get my feet wet and learning how to talk with clients and and present to clients. And quite frankly, it just continued in a natural organic growth pattern from talking with low risk, low reward clients to medium risk, medium reward to high risk, high reward. And when I say risk, I mean it being um, a client with a higher net worth, right? That's typically how we measure things in this industry, a client with more potential assets that our firm could manage, a client with a more complex set of 
financial planning facts. And um, so now where I am as a lead advisor is, you know, my client base makes referrals to me. I then take on those clients. I have my own support staff, folks who are doing the things that I used to do for advisors here at this office. And, um, and now I manage my own book of business. Now that you're a lead advisor and you said there's five people in your office, what are the different roles? Like what are with a five person office kind of, yeah. What are the different roles that people play? So our office is comprised of three lead advisors, of which I'm one of them. There are two support staff, and the support staff essentially are divided into two roles. We have one dedicated hair planner, who I like to call the sales enablement team, because that's specifically what we want them to focus on, is preparing us for that meeting where we're going to present an idea to the client. And then we also have uh, our support staff who provides operational compliance, interacts with our broker-dealer at the fiduciary and suitability levels, and makes sure that money movement has occurred as we expected. So kind of a jack-of-all-trades role. I call him the, the C-suite role because he's kind of the CFO, the CEO, the COO kind of role. And so that's how we have our firm divided. So one of the words that you, phrases that you used was your book of business. So what is a book of business and how does that like, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I don't think it has to be so jargony. You know, when you think about what we do in this industry, there's got to be a metric that we measure that by. And at the end of the day, you're going to be in the world of investments and investment advice. And when you're doing that, there's going to be statements on those accounts for your clients. And whose name shows up on that statement indicates your advisor's name is, you can reach them at, that delineates someone as your client, your specific client. So when I say the word book of business, what I mean is really in the industry, we have two jargony words. We have assets under management. And we have assets under advisement, okay? And so AUM and AUA are how we really talk about your book of business. And regardless of how you're charging for those clients to participate in your firm's services, it's the amount of clients and the size of those households as measured by the assets, so you can have a book of business and it be one client with $100 million, or you can have 100 clients with a million dollars, and you would still have a book of business the size of $100 million. So that's just kind of how advisors judge each other on kind of a 10,000-foot level. Here's the size of my firm. This is the size of my book of business. With your charging clients, do you primarily just charge them like on that AUM basis? Is that your primary way of charging? At our firm, we are both a fee and commission-based firm. So we can charge both financial planning fees and ongoing advice. And we can also choose to, choose, uh, to charge commissions as well 
on certain financial products. Now, some of those products and the way that we have to charge is out of our control. This could be its own masterclass on the real regulatory world outside of you know pure fee-only firms. Certain products out there can only be uh, commission-based, while other products and services can be both fee-only and fee and commission-based. Now that I've gone through that quick disclaimer, I will say that our firm focuses our attention on the fee side of charging our clients for services delivered. Okay. So you have the book of business with that. Are you on salary with the firm? Do you get like, are you paid based off of what your book of business is that you manage? Kind of how does that compensation structure work? Because I know it's very different in the broker dealer world often than it is um, in other spaces. Yeah. So remember when I told you that the story about going to Sonic after um, whatever it is that you were going home on your way home from school or from Taekwondo class, that's basically how we have developed this role that I currently occupy. Essentially, when we started this role as a pair planner, or when we started my career as a pair planner, I was on a basic salary with a firm-wide annual bonus. Some folks, because it happens in December, might call that a Christmas bonus. Okay, so there was really no individual performance metrics. Over time, we have determined that it makes sense for a certain percentage of my income to still be salary-based, and that continues to grow over time as my role wearing many hats in this firm. I'm not just a lead advisor. I do other things and support the other advisors in this firm which I can get into later. But as that role has grown and my responsibilities have grown, so has that base salary. But as I've become a lead advisor, or as the industry likes to call it, more production focused, meaning more focusing my time on acquiring new clients, taking them through the process, delivering on outcomes, and gathering assets along the way, I have certain bonusable hurdles that I can hit in a certain year that can make up a large portion of my total compensation now. So it's a very uh, home-brewed form of compensation that works specifically for our arrangement here. As I grew, like I said, it's not normal to be at a firm this long, but a big part of it was just us figuring out as my role changed and evolved, what's a fair balance for the firm and for myself so that I could have stability as I grew my ability to be a true lead advisor. So you had mentioned that you are also like you're a lead a lead advisor and you help support other other advisors in your office. What does that look like on a day to day basis? I know one of the questions I often get is what is what does a day to day look like of a financial planner? So I'm curious, yeah, what does your day to day look like? from your work as well as how you support others in your office? So day to day, I pretty much start my day like anybody else. I check my email. 
<laughs> but typically, I'm going to have all of my follow-up calls in the morning. There's always a checklist of folks that you need to follow up with, opportunities um, that you need to follow up with. And so all of those get done first thing because you want to make sure where those statuses of those items are on your checklist. The next thing on my day is typically those support items that we just discussed. There's at least one project at any given time that I'm working on that supports the firm as a whole. I'll tell you right now, we are in the middle of a rebalancing analysis. We manage portfolios and there is a new fund that is being added. There's a couple funds that are being switched over to ETFs. And it's a large responsibility that I help the firm be informed about those changes, understand the impacts of those changes, and then do some reporting and analysis on those changes, not just for my clients, but for everybody's clients. And so I'm helping answer this week, what are the capital gains on the changes recommended in the portfolios? So that's not necessarily just my book of business that's being impacted. I'm supporting all the folks in this shop to answer those questions. And again, that's just an evolution of my natural strength in our particular software package that does that analysis. If I become a specialist in that software package, the other advisors don't have to be. So that's pretty much uh, the morning in the afternoon. You know, I'll focus on the actual client meetings. I'll sit down and I'll have probably one to three Zoom meetings in the afternoon, depending on how many clients I scheduled that day. Those are just your traditional Zoom meetings where you would expect us to talk about the entire financial planning process. How many clients do you work with? I personally work with about 60 households. And is that kind of at capacity for you or kind of what would you say is like your capacity as, as a new planner? The honest answer is twofold. Number one, it's probably 50% of my lifetime capacity. I think there's a lot of information out there and a lot of studies that have shown how many great client relationships an advisor can handle. And it typically peaks out between 120 to 150 household clients. Now, the second part of this answer is that as an advisor grows their practice, there is a practical reality of what we like to call client segmentation in the industry. But what that means is as you grow your practice and you start to become a lead advisor, moving up in the world of being a financial planner or wealth advisor, you're not going to be able to service every single one of your clients the same as you grow from say where I am 60 to where I may peak at 120. The next 60 will be different than the first 60. And I'm already experiencing that change. I'm already getting a different type of client coming to our office to meet with, with us and talk with us. And so there are some folks who eventually out of the first 60 will probably no longer 
make a great fit for me and our practice and will need to either work with another junior advisor here in the office as things go on or find another home as things progress forward in my career. And that's just a reality I wanted to be very blunt about. I think that's helpful too, of just giving perspective on what is it, how, you know, if we're doing finished planning well, like, you know, we can't, we have our own limited capacity um, for that. So I'm curious, you know, one of the other things that really stood out to me about you in particular than a lot of the people we have on the podcast is that you work with a broker dealer versus kind of an RAA space. So I'd love for you to tell me, tell me more about what does it mean to work for a broker dealer, um, especially for somebody who is just like, what the heck is a broker dealer? What is an RAA? What does any of this mean? Um, give context to, to what it means to work for a broker dealer. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that a lot of folks don't realize when they're entering into this industry is that there are many different types of business models. There are many different types of revenue models. There are many different types of organizational models. How is the team built? Which parts of your services do you want to in-house versus outsource? And the thing that the broker-dealer model really has an advantage on is the ability to start small and lean with an office that's more biased towards having more advisors than support staff and maybe less assets as well. So let me just give you a hypothetical reality. When someone enters into this workforce and they want to go out there and start on their own. They're going to be faced with a lot of structural challenges in setting up, you know, let's just use an analogy here or a metaphor. Um, they need to build the boat. They're going to have to decide what type of boat. They're going to have to decide, you know, how big it is and what kind of people they need to hire and all that kind of good stuff. There's a lot of positions that need to be done and they're going to be tempted to wear all of those hats themselves. Okay. This is like the do it yourself or if you've ever watched any of these home remodel type shows, you know, it's like, where are these people living when they're doing all this? But anyways, I use that analogy to say that I think that's the model that's most talked about is like I went out there and I built it myself and, and I started from the bottom. Well, that works for some people, but the model that we've chosen brings in a broker dealer to already have that boat built and we just need to plug into it and our firm essentially in our office is considered like a branch office of our broker dealer. That means that we don't have to uh, do compliance, suitability, fiduciary, legal, due diligence at the first round of any of the products or services or agreements that we enter into. We have all of those three those things built out to a degree that still affords us a level of independence and choice with how we want to structure our relationships and compensation with our clients without having to have built it all ourselves. So I can call our broker dealer and ask questions that 
might make some new advisors feel stupid. I can call trading and I can say, hey, by the way, I know I have a seven, but how do I do this again? I can call compliance and I can say, hey, I want to post this on our website. How do I make sure this won't get me into trouble? Or I can call fiduciary and say, hey, I've never dealt with a client who has this type of annuity. What should I do to make sure that I'm crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's? And they're there to help me. And they're not a part of my office here in Austin, but they're a part of my extended support staff that we've chosen to engage as our broker dealer. So I think it's important that most people understand the role of the broker dealer and how they can provide you that outsourced support that you may not want to have to build out yourself. And it's, it can be a really great resource uh, for helping, helping planners as they, as they build their business, you know, if they're building the business or if you're like working with, 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 a, um, with a firm, um, you know, one of the things that, that's interesting to me about this whole conversation, broker dealers and RAs is this idea of one is fiduciary and what is not. Are you a fiduciary working in a broker dealer? Yeah, absolutely. And I would have to say that my CFP designation pretty much supersedes whatever else I'm doing at any given time. Look, we're all wearing many, many hats here and the choice to be ethical and the choice to have the client's best interest in mind and the choice to be an outcomes-driven financial advisor is going to be on the individual. There's no amount of regulatory paperwork that a broker-dealer or an RIA can throw at individual advisors that will ever force them to do the right thing or to do right by the client. It's, it's really not what's going to create that kind of culture. I think it's up to every individual to make that decision for themselves and say, this is where the industry is going in the future. I want to be a part of the future of this industry, regardless of any historical baggage it may carry. And then we just have to rely on things like this podcast and what I think the CFP board is doing a great job of, which is having a marketing campaign that supports that kind of messaging. So, you know, I don't think that any kind of business model or any kind of setup inherently is going to lead to good or bad outcomes for the client. It's just so interesting to me because I know some really great, I mean, you found a great fit um, at a broker dealer and I have some friends who have amazing jobs and amazing careers in the broker dealer world. And it's, you know, I hear so many new planners say, I only want a job at an RAA. And it's like, there's, there's a whole world out there. Um, and, and there's really good jobs at a lot of different places. I, I want to dispel something because we keep using the term broker dealer. So in our case, I do work for a broker dealer that's where my securities licenses are held. But most broker dealers today also have a registered investment advisor under the same name as the broker dealer, or maybe under a slightly different name. So let me just be very clear here. Emeritus Investment Company, LLC, otherwise known as AIC, is a broker dealer. There are certain components 
in actions and transactions when I'm wearing that cap as a registered representative of that broker-dealer, okay? But then there are also services that our firm offers that are under Emeritus Advisory Services, LLC, otherwise known as AAS. That's our registered investment advisor. And that's when I'm acting as an IAR. And so I think it's important to realize that broker-dealer is kind of a... um, a misnomer because most broker dealers, you know, historically broker dealer based advisory shops also have a sister RIA under a similar name that they're operating under. And the advisor can be talking to a client and in one sentence wearing their hat working under the broker dealer. And then in the next sentence, they may be switching their hat and working under the RIA structure. So it's important for folks to realize that, yes, I work for a broker-dealer, but I probably spend the majority of my time under the purview of the RIA. So I can just feel the planners who are listening to this who are just getting started and are like, oh my gosh, this is so confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So my question for you is how long did it take you when you first started to really feel comfortable with all these different structures of understanding kind of like the landscape? Honestly, I still don't understand it. (laughs) Yes. It's complicated. I don't, you know, the beauty is, especially in this arrangement where we have both the broker dealer and the RIA, The beauty is, is that I can reach out to either side and ask the question and they'll tell me which side I'm really operating under and say, Hey, is this more of a question for you? Is this more, but I don't even talk in those terms. You know, once you're in the business, you're talking more like, Hey, is this more of a question for Hannah or is this more of a question for Charles? And he'll say, yeah, this is more like, this is more like an RIA question. You should reach out to Charles and, and uh, he's your fiduciary analyst over there and see what he thinks. I mean, I think the big misconception is that this is corporate America and corporate America doesn't care about you and you're going to just be out there alone on your own. The reality is, is that broker dealers, RIAs, and even insurance agencies They're just people. They're human beings. They are just like you. They are working their job and a lot of their jobs in each of those three organizations I just mentioned, insurance agencies, broker dealers, and RIAs. They have a ton of people whose job it is just to make sure that you're successful. So it's not like you're expected to know everything. It's not like you're expected to even understand how it works. You're expected to advocate for yourself, pick up the phone, call them, ask them, hey, this is a stupid question, but are you the right person to talk to? That is literally the most important thing that new folks probably need to realize is you need to just pick up the phone, dial the person who you think you should be talking to, and instead of assuming that they're the right person, just tell them your question. Hey, I've got a quick question about this variable annuity. are you the person who I could reach out to this or is there somebody else you think I should reach out to that might be able to handle it? That's literally the goal, the golden question. 
a lot of new planners are looking for a job. They don't want to start their own firm. They don't want to go start looking for clients. And you've had success with landing in a firm that you've stayed with for a long time. And so I'm curious, as as people are going to interview for jobs, what are the questions that they should be asking uh, to f- figure out if it's a good fit for them? Wow. The questions that they need to be asking are the questions about the first thing that comes into my mind is what kind of software stack do you use? Because it's not going to be a good fit if they cannot get on board with our software stack quickly. More and more and more, I'm assuming that you know the job domains of, of what most CFB most CFP board programs are teaching. So I'm going to take that for granted. But the thing that I don't think that you know about is how we use our software stack. And almost every person that we've hired here, I've spent the majority of my time educating them and training them on how to use our software stack and what our best practices are. So I would want them to take that information and then just go do as much, you know, YouTube self-training as possible to figure out how those things all tie together and gain some proficiency with them if they haven't already. Oh, that's great advice. I know a lot of planners are, I don't want to say scared. That's probably too strong of a term. They're worried about going to work for places that maybe they don't feel like are serving clients well, or that are just very product heavy, um, or just, you know, selling products versus doing financial planning. Uh, How would you kind of, what are the questions that you would ask to really find a firm that's doing good financial planning work versus just, you know, selling, you know, the, the one annuity of the month that might be out there. That's kind of the reputation that's out there. The first thing that I'll have to say is that I want to kind of dispel that that is how, you know, their opportunity is going to present itself. I'm not seeing that type of opportunity in the shops that are in high demand today. What I'm seeing is that that type of shop that you described is either in a maintenance phase, a mature phase, or in a decline phase of their business cycle. And because of that, none of those phases include hiring new staff. So let's, let's, That's my bias. I think that that type of opportunity is declining. And I think that the opportunities that they're going to look for and find or even just that are growing are going to be opportunities where there's going to be more highly skilled positions open. Now, I am a lead advisor and you do get here by sales. Okay. I want to say sales is not bad. Okay. So I think it's very important. If you really do want to do the lead advisor role, you have to learn the art and the science behind talking to people, to communicating to people and coaching people, and then making sure that you actually implement those things. Because the difference between a teacher and an effective financial planner is the outcomes. And so are you leaving those outcomes up to your clients to go figure out on their own at their own time? 
or are you challenging them to go get those outcomes now, today? So I think the word challenge is really going to lead us into the real, real, real answer to your question. I think candidates looking for jobs should ask the question, are your advisors challenging their clients when it comes to the advice that they give them? Or, and this is not the nicest way of saying it, but, or do they take their clients' orders and try to fulfill those? Because those are actually two mutually exclusive approaches to financial planning. And I think that one is a way forward in the industry and one is a way backwards. And everything from there comes from the spirit, the spirit of whether or not advisors are challenging their clients and sticking by their philosophies and sticking by their beliefs and their process, or are they just taking on folks so that they can collect their assets and then spend a lot of time trying to fulfill whatever that client's particular demands are on more of a transactional relationship. You're on the path for a lead advisor, but we were talking about other career paths. So I'd love to have your thoughts on, you know, is, you know, so much of what we talk about in financial planning is being a lead advisor, but are there other opportunities out there? Absolutely. Yeah. And we want those opportunities to develop earlier on in someone's career path. You know, Hannah, before we got on, one of the things that I was telling you is that at least for the majority of my cohort, probably the cohort of advisors even prior to us, there's been a way of entering this industry. And it's typically through the pipeline of wanting to fill that lead advisor role. I'm going to walk this path and I'm going to meet with clients and I'm going to have my book of business. And the reality is, what ends up happening is certainly some people become lead advisors, but other people end up going through, you know, kind of stumbling into whatever role they end up in. And if someone's not a lead advisor, you'll find them usually saying, well, I got here, I kind of stumbled into this. You know, I initially did this X, Y, and Z, and now I'm at B. And I'm pretty biased in this conversation. I call this kind of my soapbox, and I'll be honest. I believe that folks need to find the dignity in developing out the support staff and other adjacent career paths that are a part of an advisory shop to deliver the great advice and outcomes that we hope and help our clients achieve. And the lead advisor is just one person in that team. Now they may be like, you know, the superstar, but they are supported by an entire team of folks. And one of the challenges that I have seen is that firms are not just jumping to find more lead advisors, while certainly that's a quick way to grow their business, what they can't find today, at least, what's in low supply and high demand, is someone with 
many years of industry experience who understands processes like the CFP board's process for financial planning, who understands products, who understands service models, but doesn't necessarily have to give advice as a part of their job description. So let me just dive right into this. I told you earlier, we have a paraplanner. Well, what I didn't tell you is that our paraplanner is a career paraplanner. She is awesome at paraplanning. Yes, she actually at one point dabbled in the world of advice, but she kind of fell into paraplanning and found that she was amazing at paraplanning. I can't do my job without her being so awesome at her job. And so I see the future for where careers are going is that each one of these career paths being specialized and each one of these career paths being distinct and each one of these career paths as being just as dignified as the other. Because today, finding a highly experienced person who can handle the operations of e-money and tying that back into the actual sales enablement deliverables that we provide during our client presentations, that skill set is in extremely high demand right now. Okay. Now, there's other positions, not just sales enablement, I call that generally, right? Um, but there's also operational positions. There's also compliance positions. Uh, there's for the RIA model, there's suitability and fiduciary. There's also portfolio manager positions. Listen, some people really just enter into this field because they love the investments. They love trading. I'll tell you a secret. The analysis that I do at this firm for all of our portfolios, that's not what gets me up in the morning. Yeah, I, I love geeking out on it once I'm here, but what gets me up in the morning is that first meeting with the client. I have no idea what they're going to tell me about today, what kind of bomb they're going to drop on me. you know. And so that's what excites me, but that's not true for other people. Some people can't wait to get up and hear what the futures are doing, what the market is doing. And so we need each one of those people to be their own professional and to see themselves as the epitome of their career path. And so I'm specifically talking about paraplanners. Paraplanning has been the jack of all trades role in our industry for a long time. And what I see moving forward is paraplanners becoming a specialized career path that is on itself the, the, the not only the means, but also the ends of getting an education in this field. There's a role for everybody and different skill sets have different places and, and we need all of it, right? Um, I have friends who don't ever want to be a lead advisor. They're supporting financial planners through, um, through investment companies or products or whatever it could be. And it's like their goal is to help advise our planners, support their clients. Um, so there's so many roles within financial planning firms or those supporting financial planning firms. It's, it's, there is a home for you here, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just quickly plug the 12 tribes of financial advice. It's a, it's a great 
piece that some folks who graduated from the Texas Tech program and their PhD program put together after they uh, left the program. Great people who understood that there is more than just one business model. There's more than just one piece of this industry, but an education in financial planning and wealth management makes you a great candidate for a lot of these opportunities outside of just being lead advisor. So Jason, as our time is wrapping up, I am curious, what advice would you give to somebody who is entering financial planning today? Yeah, sure. I've got a couple of pieces of advice. Number one, call your grandmother. Do it at least once a week. And here's why. When you get into this field, you're going to realize that relationships are what this entire field of practice is based off of. And being able to maintain a relationship with someone in your extended family, like your grandmother, who, let's be honest, in a lot of this industry, we're dealing with retirees, okay? Being able to maintain that relationship, talk to these people and relate to them for more than five, 10 minutes. I mean, the average client phone call is going to be like 60 minutes long. So you need to be very well uh, experienced in having conversations with people of different generations than you, different perspectives than you. And so calling your grandma is a great way to get started, okay? The next thing that I'll offer is to listen to podcasts. And this is kind of self-evident because here we are on a podcast. But there's other great podcasts out there that you can be listening to That'll prepare you for the realities of what this career is like. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say really ties back into the expectations of what kind of job you're going to get or what kind of employer you're going to have or what kind of business or compensation model you're going to have. Listen, most people have to muddle through it. Most people are not going to get that Cinderella opportunity. What I would say is, Give every firm that gives you a chance, a chance back. Because listen, I've been on this side of training folks for the entire time that I've been working here. We take a lot of time out of our day, out of our energy, out of our lives to get you up to speed in our firms. And the least that you could do is recognize the points of wisdom whether or not you see yourself working at that firm for five, 10 years or nine years like me, respect the fact that this opportunity is taking someone else's energy and time and effort and commitment to you and give some of that commitment back. Whether or not it's something that you think you're going to do forever, give it a real shot. You will learn something no matter how uncomfortable you feel. It's going to be worthwhile thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. Uh, this has been a great conversation. If somebody wants to follow you or reach out, what is the best way for them to get in contact? Yeah, absolutely. So LinkedIn, I'm really active on LinkedIn. I could talk a whole nother day about why you need to get on LinkedIn yesterday, but find me on LinkedIn. Jason spelt with an E, J-A-S-E-N-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And I'll see you there. Great. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, Hannah. 
Sustainable investing in the United States continues to expand at a robust pace, and one in three U.S. investment dollars uses environmental, social, and governance strategies. Gain your competitive edge by earning the chartered SRI counselor designation from the College for Financial Planning, a Kaplan company. It's the first and only major financial credential dedicated specifically to sustainable, responsible, and impact investments. FPA members save 15% on eligible Kaplan programs. Get started today and gain the specialized knowledge that can set you apart. Visit kaplan.com slash FPA members. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession. Jason Wallace offers products and services using the following business names, Weinheimer Wealth Management, Insurance and Financial Services, Ameritas Investment Company, LLC, AIC, member FINRA and SIPC, Securities and Investments, Ameritas Advisory Services, AAS, Investment and Advisory Services.